You're listening to Emmy Award-winning host, Jordan J. Adams. I recently emceed Microdose Wonderland, billed as the largest psychedelic medicine business event ever. It was coincidental, but timed perfectly with my current vetting of plant medicine as a possible comrade in my quest to clear my foggy and sluggish brain. The conference was a bountiful harvest of the exact kind of people I want to meet, ballers, people who are killing it in the world and know way more than I do on how to recover health, mental performance, and well-being. One of the standouts amongst a group of standouts is here with me today. Josiah Hess is a freelance journalist in Denver, Colorado. He writes about politics, marijuana, and evangelical culture and theology, and is a regular contributor to The Guardian and Vice. His work has appeared in Esquire, and he's had bylines in Politico, High Times, and the Denver Post. He's currently the senior editor of the Denver arts and literature magazine, Suspect Press. Josiah Hess, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Last time I saw you was at Microdose Wonderland in Miami, a uh, wonderful conference on psychedelic medicine. And I didn't have a chance to ask you yet, how was the conference for you? It was a wild ride. Um, I had no idea that the psychedelic industry was as far along as it appears to be. Uh, I mean, it, it's not exactly where the cannabis industry is, but at one point somebody handed me a little tin of psilocybin gummies and it looked like something that just came out of a dispensary and I really couldn't believe it. I had no idea that these products uh, were out there. So, and, and I met some great people. Uh, there were some fascinating conversations that came out of it. Uh, I had an article that came out in The Guardian earlier this week uh, reflecting on that conference and the, uh, the kind of culture clash that's going on between the more idealistic uh, hippie side of the movement and the big business CEO types. So it, it was a lot of fun all around. I need to uh, write for The Guardian or for Vice. No one gave me any free swag. <laughs> Especially I didn't get any psilocybin gummies. I got a bunch of paperwork, but that was about all I got. You've written this wonderful book, a Runner's High, How a Movement of Cannabis-Fueled Athletes is Changing the Science of Sport. And there you see, oh, I get a, uh, try to get the bottom in there with that there. Josiah Hess, it's a nice cover when it's not. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that the cover is going psychedelic on us. <laughs> I fought <laughs> for the, uh, the stars at the top. Yeah, yeah. To, it is a like wonderful it's... read. Uh, I, you know, I oh, get to read you. a fair amount of books on health and listen to hundreds, if not thousands of podcasts on health. I have to say it's a real treat, Josiah, to, um, you know, read a book that's written by an investigative journalist because it's different mm. than reading a traditional health book that's you know usually written by the scientist him or herself when it's written well written you know with this professionally written narrative with humor context and insight it was much easier for me to grasp the more difficult science because it was kind of in metaphoric mm. you know prose really nice read thank you thank you uh, if you'll hold for just one second, I'm going to close the curtain on my office. The uh, son decided to make a cameo and uh, <laughs> right in my eyes. I can see that. There, we should a play little a little better. Beatles there. Little Here Comes the Sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my um, 
main objective with writing that book, in addition to, you know, wanting to unpack the science and educate people on what was really going on with cannabis and athletics was really just to write a, a fun read, uh, something that people could, you know, enjoy picking up, uh, you know, after they put it down the night before. And I think often with science um, or any esoteric topic that people don't know about, and I'm sure, you know, this book appeals to like people in athletics that don't know anything about cannabis or people in cannabis that don't know anything about athletics or the science, there's uh, a lot of um, pitfalls to um, going overboard with the information or presenting it in a way that just kind of makes people gloss over uh, and can't really absorb it. And if you're not getting the information, if you're not presenting it in an accessible way, you're really not presenting it at all. You might as well have not written a book because it's not really getting into anyone's head. Um, so that was, a, that was a fun challenge to, you know, take things like uh, the endocannabinoid system or the variety of regulations uh, around cannabis in sports uh, and present them in some sort of accessible, fun way. Yeah, that to me, it's such a double win because I really need the science, you know, for my own personal health quest. And yet, you know, I, I really drift off. You know, part of the reason uh, I'm, I'm on such a health quest is I'm trying to get some function back, you know, in terms of my, my brain capabilities. And so a real heavy scientific text is something I have to read because I'm trying to save my own brain. But it, boy, thank you for making it accessible. You know, such, such a, a scientific topic. And I'm laughing throughout, you know, chapter after chapter, infused with humor. We'll talk about the carrot cake uh, fiasco later on, but, uh, you know, it's infused with wonderful humor. And so it just made it, you know, I couldn't put it down. It, it was, it was great. And, you know, it was really amazing to me. Um, and you had mentioned this in your book, that's such an interesting topic because, you know, they're, you know, there's a fair amount of us who love to exercise and there's, there's, you know, ton of us who love to get high, such an, you know, interesting um, hybrid that has never really been talked about or dealt with. And you said when you originally went to look for research on it, you couldn't find much that no one really had done a deep dive on the subject yet. Why do you think such a fascinating topic fell through the cracks? Well, I think if you look at the history of <clears throat> research around cannabis, uh, well, particularly after the Nixon administration or, you know, even worse after Reagan, uh, it was all geared towards the negative. Um, the really, the only way to get a study funded, to get approval from the DEA to use their terrible cannabis, uh, which was all you could use, you know, you can't use anything that's grown in the black market or later on in the legal market. It was all going to be geared toward, you know, how is this dangerous for children? How does this make you lazy? How does this make you stupid? Uh, so there were so many, so much politics that had infused the research. And that's true about the war on drugs across the board, not just with cannabis. Uh, you know, and people like Carl Hart are speaking out about that. And that's really changing now. Um, and I think for the longest time, most people didn't know how prevalent cannabis use was in athletics, including the people who were using it. You know, again and again, throughout uh, the process of doing interviews for this book, I met people who thought that they were the only ones who used cannabis and uh, they were very secretive about it. And so it was something that remained underground uh, by default, you know, not because it wasn't very popular, but because nobody knew how popular that, that it was, you know, the people 
competing or training while they were high were often doing it next to other people who were high, but they had no idea because everyone was uh, keeping it to themselves. And with legalization, you started to see more and more people uh, admitting that they've been using cannabis a long time. Sometimes people were getting caught, you know, like Michael Phelps or later on Shikari Richardson. Uh, and so it just, you know, we've slowly begun to realize, oh, this is very, very prevalent. And just before I uh, started writing the book, there were a number of people uh, in all uh, avenues of sports saying, 60, 80, 90% of everyone in their sport is using cannabis in one way or another before, during, or after their training, uh, sometimes in competition. And, and uh, as most of us know, that that's banned. Um, so it's something that when I got into it, uh, I, I couldn't resist the, the opportunity to report on something that was so prevalent, yet so underreported. And it's interesting that that uh, fell into my lap because uh, before this, you know, I've been a journalist for a very long time, but I'd never touched sports uh, in any way. Um, never really had a, a great interest in sports. I didn't participate in sports in school. Uh, as I say in the book, throughout my 20s, I didn't exercise or at least not uh, consciously, uh, you know, maybe ride my bike here and there going out dancing. But um, when I was about 20, nine or 30, I uh, started getting into running uh, for the mental health benefits and really hated it, thought it was boring and painful. Uh, and then I tried it with edibles and it was a complete game changer. Uh, it was so much fun and easy that it became the, the centerpiece of my week, uh, you know, or, or my day a lot of the time. Uh, I couldn't wait to finish work and go for a run. It was my treat at the end of the day. It was something I rewarded myself with. It wasn't by any means a, a discipline that I was pursuing. And I wasn't doing it with any sort of goals in mind. I was hardly ever measuring my pace or distance or time or anything. Um, so when you know I started uh, writing about it, first for The Guardian and then for Esquire, this intersection of um, first just runners um, who were using cannabis, uh, ultra marathon runners, you know, doing 100, 200 mile races through the mountains. Um, it just, uh, I, I, I thought, I kept thinking, surely there's someone else uh, who would be better suited to report on this. Um, but I, I loved running high so much that I, I knew I could write about it in an uh, engaging way. And like I said, I've been a freelance journalist covering a variety of topics for so long. I, I, I felt like, okay, I, I can navigate this world. I can enter this world of competition and uh, uh, professional athletics, but I, I do disclose a number of times in the book how new it is to me. And so if somebody's looking for, you know, a comprehensive breakdown of, you know, the, the sports itself, um, you know, I, I get into the culture a little bit. I, I, I get into uh, uh, the different sensibilities when it comes to cannabis and sports, but mostly I rely on my sources, the people who have been on the, in that world for years and years, so, well, really for their whole careers. Uh, and, and proudly admit myself, I mean, not proudly, I don't want to be a dick about it, but like, I'm like, this, uh, this is not my world. This is not my wheelhouse, but, uh, I love running high and I talk to a whole lot of other people that like working out high and, uh, this is what they had to say. Well, yeah. And you don't come across, you know, as a dick, even remotely, you really like, I can sense, especially after reading your book, the compassion and empathy with which you wrote the book, because you were one of those people who was on the couch. I mean, you were always 
you had a great work ethic. You have a great work ethic. You were a journalist and, and working very hard, but you also had all of the sort of accoutrements that come with being a journalist. You had that kind of Hemingway thing going on, right? Where you were drinking and smoking and, you know, uh, Basically, you had a funny passage about, um, oh, sassily, you were sassily uh, pressing the keyboard with some sassy journalism or something. I remember that, that word just is so perfect. You know, the, the hardest thing I'd ever done to that point was being sassy on my computer or something. It was, right. it was so funny. But, you know, the point being that you were not the typical athlete who had been working out throughout, you know, throughout middle school and junior high and high school. You're on the other side of the coin. And so for you to now be addicted to such a positive thing, you know, running is, is really a, a strong statement to how cannabis can turn things around or can kind of um, make your physiology actually enjoy it rather than it being painful or something that's boring. It really speaks to what, what you know, what is that that what like chemically is happening in the body that makes you actually enjoy running. Yeah, that was a, a really important theme for me to lean into in the narrative, uh, particularly with the autobiographical stuff, because I thought my story appealed to the number of Americans and quite a few who don't like to exercise. Uh, I think something like 17% of Americans get sufficient exercise each week. And that's just sort of like, that's not athletics at all. That's not like, you know, hitting the gym hard. That's like, you know, going for a brisk walk and doing some uh, a little bit of push-ups uh, each week. Um, I, I really had no interest in that and had these cultural assumptions about the kind of people who did it, you know, the people that kicked my ass in high school uh, and just uh, had a bad taste uh, from for that world. Uh, and what cannabis brought to that experience was um, a, a playfulness, you know, a... Um, in the moment uh, pleasure for the activity itself. And I think for most people, they think of exercise as the pursuit of some end goal, you know, weight loss, beauty, uh, health, um, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but I discovered through cannabis that it, it, it's its own reward, uh, the running itself. Uh, you know, there, there are rewards that come later, but you can pursue it just for the pleasure of, uh, of the activity itself. And where that comes from uh, is evolution. Um, I think most people listening to this, uh, people who are familiar with uh, distance running have heard of the book Born to Run, uh, Christopher McDougall's book, I think it was like 2003. Uh, there was a lot of research in there that showed humans have the physiology for running long distances uh, uh, greater than any other species, really. Uh, we're certainly not the fastest by far, uh, but we have this incredible ability to run long distances. Uh, and evolutionary anthropologists believe this, this was so we could uh, run down gazelles, uh, you know, or any other uh, pre uh, prey that we're trying to uh, eat. And we certainly can't catch them, you know, in short distances, but on hot days, we can wear them down with just a very moderate level of exercise. And I spoke to a lot of the people involved in that research and, uh, you know, followed them after that book came out and they continued to research what it is uh, that's going on an emotional uh, and physiological level beyond just like having the great feet and knees and butt for running. We actually have these uh, pleasure centers, these uh, reward systems that incentivize certain behavior. You know, and we have that with food, you know, with salt, sugar, fat, 
Uh, there's a reason we're attracted to those things. They, they were rare at one point and our bodies needed them. Uh, same thing with sleep, same thing with sex, same with learning. Uh, we get a little jolt, a little dopamine high from these things. Uh, and it's the same with exercise. Uh, we've sort of set that aside, you know, over the last century, you know, we still love the food and the sex and the sleep, but for some reason we don't get pleasure out of exercise, or at least a great deal of Americans uh, seem not to because uh, they apparently hate it. Uh, and the research that was going on around the runner's high and the pleasure that can come from exercise uh, showed that at running about 30 minutes or any kind of cardio at 30 minutes at 70% max heart rate will release this endogenous cannabinoid called anandamide. Uh, so we all have uh, cannabinoids in us, you know, just like there's THC and CBD in cannabis. We have endogenous cannabinoids, internal ones, just like we have an internal Whoa. opioid uh, called endorphins. Uh, and for a long time, people believed endorphins were responsible for the runner's right. high, and you still hear it today. There's a gym down the street here called endorphins. Uh, and even on WebMD, they'll say like endorphins are responsible for the runner's high. But most of the research uh, shows that it's not endorphins. It's anandamide, an endogenous cannabinoid. And it comes from the Sanskrit word for bliss. Uh, so, you know, like I said, 30 minutes, 70% heart rate, you get a little uptick in mood, a little reduction in pain. And this was uh, a mechanism that could incentivize running down gazelles, you know, in the African savanna, like uh, when you're so exhausted uh, and you're full of so much pain, this can sort of transport you into a, an easier realm. And I often compare it to running as a child. Uh, you know, when you're a kid and you go running across the playground, uh, you're not really thinking about, you know, like I said, beauty or health or fitness, you know, or anything. You're just like, ah, this is fun. Like, let's go run. And that's really the, the headspace that uh, cannabis can put you in and can take you out of, uh, you know, all of the ancillary chatter of like, you know, am I, do I look ugly? Are people laughing at me? Is this ridiculous? Am I getting old? Do I not run as well as I used to, you know, look at that person passing me and just sort of myopically focus on the task itself, you know, and, and the pleasure of the task itself. The, for running, it's a, a sort of meditative quality of the repetition of step, 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 and you can kind of drift away into uh, a realm of bliss. And that has application beyond just uh, recreational athletes looking to have a good time or incentivize themselves to uh, exercise. It, it, it has a lot of applications for professional athletes as well. I spent a great deal of time with ultra marathon runners uh, being in Colorado, you know, in, in Denver, we're right next to Boulder, which is sort of one of the capitals of uh, endurance running uh, in the world. And so speaking with a lot of them, uh, what I hear again and again is that this is um, this endeavor of, of running for days and days. It's like 10% physical and 90% mental. So yes, you have to have the body to be able to handle those miles, but the real struggle, the real battle is in your head. You know, uh, you go a little crazy up there on the mountain after running for so long. You enter an almost like psychedelic realm, which can be uh, euphoric or menacing, uh, and you can lose your nerve and you really need to stay confident. And I guess that's not just uh, the case with endurance athletes, you know, that's the case with you know, uh, fighters uh, or uh, skiers, uh, anyone who, you know, is, is going to be a little intimidated by the task. 
um, a little puff of cannabis, and, and we can get into that later, uh, a small dose uh, can sort of like put all that away. And suddenly you're reminded why you got into it in the first place, uh, what you originally loved about it. You know, if you make it your career, uh, if you make anything your career, it's really easy to lose sight of why you got into it in the first place. And cannabis can sort of return people to that state of like, I love these trails. I love running. I love competing. I, I love being out here for days. This is my uh, heaven. This is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. Um, and so that's that's really just like one aspect of, of cannabis uh, that has application for athletes. There are dozens. You know, Josiah, what was popping in my head while you're talking is man's misery is in his or hers resistance to nature. That was just kind mm. of was popping into my head while you're talking, because we've had this beautiful symphony with nature since the beginning of time where the species learned to live with each other. You know, the bacteria has an agreement, you know, it's the bacteria is not us. We're, we're kind of like, they're letting us take them around, right? Like they're saying, okay, you can be our host. We'll let you be our host. And it's this, it, now that we, you know, endogenous being inside the body cannabinoid system blew me away when I read that passage in your book, because I always thought it was the endorphins right up until I read that passage. And to know that the body manufactures its own cannabinoids is a way of letting you know that when we originally discovered the plant, we said, boy, this is like, we learned it and it learned us. And as long as we don't resist that, it's that beautiful high you talk about. It's only when we try to be separate from nature and which, you know, I would theorize that that's just fear of death, right? Like the, the bigger picture is just we're terrified of death and that's the resistance of death is resisting nature. Somehow we can control it. <laughs> we can, yeah. we can, we can be eternal, you know? And when I surrender to it and just uh, take a deep breath and say, wow, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to resist anymore. I'm going to mm -hmm. be live in symphony, you know, live in concert with nature. Um, you, you lose that. You're not the bully anymore. That bully that you referred to in your book, you know, that person who's trying to control, trying to, I can just outwork, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I can outwork it. I can outwork it. You know? Yeah. It's not playful. Well, and I think that it also relates to pain, you know, in this uh, era of um, pharmaceuticals or really just like, you know, temperature controlled environments, you know, we're just surrounded by comforts that push away pain and discomfort. And what I got from endurance running was embracing pain, uh, leaning into it. They, there's that phrase, the pain cave. Uh, and there's something you know, the, from a neurological standpoint, pleasure and pain aren't wildly different. They activate a lot of the same regions of the brain. And there's a euphoria that comes uh, after you embrace pain. Uh, people, you know, there's uh, the Wim Hof uh, cold weather exposure uh, uh, thing that's uh, become so popular uh, for good reason. You know, you do just get like this uh, wild surge of uh, all sorts of things after leaning into that pain. It's the same thing with running for hours and hours. And the interesting thing about cannabis and pain is um, pain is registered in two different 
uh, parts of the brain. There's two different things that are going on when we feel pain. You know, if my ankle's hurting, there's a part of my brain that just notices what's going on. Like something's wrong with my ankle. It's talking to me right now. And I notice uh, like either push through it or I need to address it, whatever. But then there's the emotional side of like, holy shit, ow, this hurts. I want to scream. I want to punch something. And then the fear of like, oh no, is this injury flailing up again? Is is my career over? Am I going to be able to finish this race? The, The anxiety around the pain. Cannabis doesn't change your noticing the pain, your acknowledgement of it, but it does change your emotional relationship to the pain. Uh, so you can still be aware of what's going on in your body, uh, but not necessarily freak out about it. You can just be like, yep, there goes that ankle pain uh, flaring up again. Uh, you know, I guess I've got to make a decision on what to do about that. Um, but it's the same thing with like uh, the anxiety of, you know, being a downhill skier or a base jumper or a rock climber, uh, that, that it can change your um you know, relationship to those activities. Uh, and that's one of the reasons WADA wants it banned. It's one of the reasons they cite for it being banned is, is that it changes people's fear about past injuries uh, in a variety of things where when I read that, I was like, is that really a bad thing? Is that, is that part of the spirit of the sport to be to have anxiety? Uh, but yeah, I agree with what you're saying about, you know, connecting with nature and uh, leaning into all of the different uh, ways that we're integrated with nature, that our bodies are a part of nature, that uh, there isn't really any separation between uh, one another as humans, uh, but also us and nature. And I think a lot of our anxiety and discomfort with modern life uh, comes from that mm. uh, divorce that we have from the natural mm. world. That's what I love about trail running. Mm. It's just one long commune with nature. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the saying that I, that I love and I, and it lives in me and it was planted very deeply by a great Buddhist master here in Tampa, Michael Gregory, who actually I think is in San Diego now. Uh, anyway, wonderful guy. I'll have to connect you with him. You'll, you'll really groove on him, but he said, you know, dispassionate observation. And mm. I thought those two words really are powerful to employ in my life. So like when you said, oh, there goes that knee again there were, you were, the, the pain was there, but the, your relationship to it was different. And yeah. it was more of a neutral observation. And that can be applied, you know, when my wife um, is saying something that might have in the past triggered something, I can say, oh, there's that subject again, that may, oh, there's my stomach getting tight. Oh, there's my, there's something about being the observer and I, I'm not saying we should all be like Spock and not feel emotion and not feel right. sadness and warmth and joy that they're two separate subjects. It's changing the relationship to some of those negatives and kind of watching them. And cannabis is wonderful for that. I, I remember this one point, actually it was, it might've been on psilocybin. I don't know, but it was, more, it was either cannabis or psilocybin. And I saw this, what had traditionally been a subject that heated me up and I was watching the mouth going like this. And I'm like, Oh, she's framing the words. There's air coming out of the mouth. It's framing that word. Oh, and there's that word that made used to make me do that. And all it was mm-hmm. was just air and a sh- it was just a shape of a. It was such a disconnect, but in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like I was seeing the thirty-two thousand foot view. It was like a change of perspective. Yeah, and could you imagine if we applied that to something like politics? 
oh. uh, you know, government policy, economics, like if we all just sort of like calmed down and looked at these problems, you know, with uh, that dispassionate observation of like, what is the best way to stimulate the economy? What is the proper tax code, you know, yeah. and, and just got out of the, uh, well, fuck that guy and, and what he believes, you know, I'm just going to believe everything that's the opposite of him because I hate him, you know, or like you said, relationships as well. Uh, there, There's all sorts of ways that, you know, uh, in the psychedelic realm, uh, psychedelic culture, they talk about the default mode network uh, that we all live in, where you're just sort of caught up in the routine of life and the uh, routine of uh, your thoughts that you've had for years and years and it's just a well-worn groove in your brain and the thing that psychedelics help uh is, is to at least for a moment take you out of that default mode network and just see all the possibility of uh perspective uh and and feeling and approach and thinking to a whole manner of uh life obstacles um at the same time, I think the default mode network is helpful because you can't just live in that realm of infinite possibility. We do need to ground ourselves in some kind of tangible reality, if only for our own balance and sanity. Yeah, key word there, balance. Yeah, because there's times to be grounded. Um, I was at a yoga retreat in 94 and there was a, uh, I never forgot it, a woman was talking to flowers and you know she's in this sundress and talking to the flowers i thought oh that's beautiful i remember thinking that is so advanced but then by like her fourth hour of talking to the flowers i said wow that's pretty it's getting pretty counterproductive like it started <laughs> off as, i thought she was way above me or way ahead of me i was like oh what does she see what does she know i need to know what is she seeing in the flower and then by the fourth hour i said nah she's just delusional <laughs> you know it's not <laughs> you know, no great advanced yeah, uh, yeah. We, yeah, we can't completely uh, absorb ourselves in plant life. Sometimes we do need to interact with other humans. Yeah, at some point you've got to harvest them, right? Because you do need to ingest them at some point. So if you just keep talking to them and you don't eat them, you're going to be you're going to run into some some issues. Right. <laughs> You'll become catabolic, you know. Um, well, this is uh, really fascinating. Let's shift over to sort of the. Um, physical benefits because that was actually very remarkable um when i was reading your book runner's high one more time to remind everybody if they're just tuning in in we're with josiah hess a uh very very amazing investigative journalist writing for vice and been in all of the in a lot of the big journals um and i, I just want to say um well obviously denver post esquire guardian uh, before, you know, in the middle, what, why don't we, if people want to, some people like to track while they're listening to a podcast, um, what is your website, Josiah, or the best way people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing and some of your projects? My website is josiahhesse.com. Uh, Twitter is a great, uh, way to stay in touch with me at Josiah M. Hesse. Uh, through the middle initial in there. I don't know who got the You Josiah say Hesse because I heard some people call it saying hess at the uh, conference yeah uh hess is how it's pronounced uh, most of america uh it's related to uh herman hess uh the writer uh in germany they say hessa uh but i'm from iowa and in the midwest we just do everything goofy so we became hesse for some inexplicable reason okay. uh, so i don't take offense when people say hess uh it's kind of correct in a way i'm not gonna say like you need to say it the way we say it in iowa uh, yeah. but yeah, it, it works either way. 
Mike Tyson um, was at the conference and I think he called you Hess and I noticed you didn't <clears throat> correct him. Mike Tyson did. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He was there. He was, uh, I had a moment where I had to get them off stage. It was Mike Tyson, uh, Daniel Carcillo, who was a, an enforcer for the Blackhawks and Riley Cote, who was an enforcer for the flyers. Mm-hmm. Each one of them had over 200 fights each. And Patrick's like, okay, you got to get him off the stage now. I said, all right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> unenviable <laughs> task of telling those right. guys yeah uh, so let's shift over to fighting because that's my audience um and uh you know up till now the people who are trying to suppress marijuana have had the upper hand um and you know they've got that trope of the stoner on the couch with the pot belly and can't get motivated eating cheetos and watching yeah. jerry springer um but more and more athletes using uh, cannabis. And there's a lot of people using cannabis in our space in, in fighting MMA and sure. boxing. Um, there's even, I think you had referred to a group who roll high out in the, uh, your neck of the wood, right? In the Southwest uh, high rollers. That yep. must be the Diaz brothers, um, Nate and Nick and those guys. Cause are they involved uh, in it? I'm Do you not- know? I'm not sure if they're involved in it. I, I can't say either way. Um, I didn't speak with them. Uh, there was a Vice documentary, a uh, really great one uh, people can find online about high rollers. Um, <clears throat> there, there was so much to get into when it comes to the variety of avenues of sports uh, that use cannabis um, that I didn't really have the opportunity. I mean, I didn't even talk about rock climbing at all in the book, uh, other than just mentioning rock climbers like it. I could have talked all day about CBD and how it helps, you know, with the connective tissue in your hands that gets broken down with rock climbing. Uh, But uh, with fighters, yes, it's very popular for a variety of reasons. I mean, pain is obviously a big part of fighting. And like I said earlier, cannabis can change your emotional relationship to the pain. So when you're in recovery, uh, maybe you're not as uh, emotionally disturbed by what's going on in your body, but can have a more calm observational approach to it. Uh, But with high rollers, they uh, share a joint before uh, rolling. Uh, So there's a kind of camaraderie aspect to it, which I think for a lot of people, they think of uh, the world of fighting, you know, thinking about Muhammad Ali or just like any kind of trash talk that goes on. You know, when you're training, you're looking at the photo of your competitor and, you know, building up some kind of anger or hatred, or at least these are the ideas that we get in the media. I don't think it's always uh, the case with fighters, but that's uh, that's a trope that some people lean into. And with uh, high rollers, they're sharing a, a blunt or a joint right before they go rolling. And so I think there's a, an interesting conversation that needs to be had in all manner of sports about competition and camaraderie and do you have to hate your opponent uh, or can you feel challenged by them in a healthy way of like, well, look, at they're up here and I'm not quite at their level, so I'm going to work twice as hard to get you know, to them or past them. Uh, I think there could be something beautiful about competition if uh, it's approached in the right way. And I think cannabis can uh, facilitate that mindset. Um, But also in recovery, beyond, you know, like I said, the emotional uh, 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 tampering of uh, pain, you know, uh, CBD has impacts on uh, muscle spasticity. So, you know, if, if you're 
broken down you've been training hard or you just uh were wrestling or uh you know fighting in a way that's gonna like really break down your muscles uh cbd can be great for recovery and then also for sleep you know i mean as we all know sleep is uh essential to muscle recovery or any kind of uh, physical recovery uh so it's very appealing there uh if you're looking to gain weight uh you know if you're a bodybuilder you're a boxer uh you want to put on some pounds, uh, cannabis is an excellent appetite stimulant. You know, I talked to bodybuilders and they got to eat like six meals a day. You know, some of them got to get up in the middle of the night and pound some food, you know? So, uh, and then they're working out so hard that they get nauseous. I mean, some of them will puke, you know, in the middle of a training session. Uh, so you're puking and yet you need to pound like a thousand calories. Uh, yeah. Like you want an appetite stimulant and that uh or when you're getting up in the middle of the night to eat a bunch of pasta like uh, a couple hits off a joint will really you know get your stomach growling um so there's all sorts of ways that uh cannabis can be used for fighters uh and and that explains why it's wildly popular in mma or you know pro wrestling or boxing or a whole bunch i mean i sorry to throw professional wrestling into the mma and boxing world i mean i imagine that uh uh, for some people out there. No, there's respect for pro wrestling amongst the MMA crowd. They, that, yeah. they're kind of the grand poobas for learning, you know, the, the drama, the trash talking, yeah. the having a personality, okay. having a, Ken you know, Shamrock, yeah. uh, went from MMA into, uh, pro wrestling. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not well versed on, uh, the modern, uh, MMA world, but when I was, uh, a teenager, I was really into, the early UFC fights and uh, was taking Taekwondo when I was in middle school and, you know, was obsessed with Brandon Lee and Bruce Lee and uh, that whole world. So yeah, I know about the Hoist Gracie and Ken Shamrock fights. Uh, Absolutely. Really loved that when I was a kid. Oh yeah. That was, that was kind of what got me into it too. All the Shamrock and Gracie and Don Fry and some of the originals. And you were talking about the pro wrestling. There are people who go back and forth. Brock Lesnar came over from WWE and became heavyweight champion at UFC and then went back again. Now he would get mauled because you have to be so well-rounded and you have to be such a hybrid and you have to be strong in every category. Um, he would get mauled now and he knows it. That's why he's staying in the WWE. Um, but in the fight space, I wanted to ask you, has there been any research on CTEs, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy that fighters uh, almost invariably suffer at some point um, as they get older, uh, has there been any research to any kind of therapeutic um, resolves with with CBD or with cannabis? Uh, yes, uh, there's been a variety. I don't think it's uh, far enough along to speak with any absolute authority, uh, but there's a lot of promising research that's showing that uh, cannabis can act as a neuroprotectant uh, against concussions. Uh, and also against alcohol abuse, which is a fun little irony. Uh, but so, yeah, uh, for a lot of uh, um, pro football players uh, or fighters, uh, cannabis is uh, looking like uh, it can protect against concussions and also repair uh, damage done from concussions. And I believe the uh, NFL and uh, UFC are engaged in their own research uh, or involved in uh, a different research uh, going on uh, around that very topic because 
obviously, uh, you know, with all the discussion around concussions in pro sports and uh, a lot of parents wondering, you know, should I put my kid into football? Uh, you know, that's it's threatening their bottom line. It's threatening the existence of their sport. So if there's research showing that uh, any kind of intervention can mitigate uh, those uh, harmful effects of the sport. Yeah, they're definitely going to be interested. And the NFL certainly has the, the funds uh, uh, to put into that. And, you know, with the NFL, they're, they're getting, uh, it, it's less and less now, but in decades previous, uh, they were getting such a bad name for the amount of opioids uh, being prescribed to athletes. You know, uh, somebody's got a, a bad knee. Well, let's just uh, pump them full of OxyContin and send them back out onto the field. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of, you know, addiction problems that come with that, emotional problems. Uh, and then the injury itself, you're not really dealing with the injury. Uh, you're just uh, numbing it. So it's, it's certainly going to get a lot worse. You're not going to be able to give it the attention it needs. Uh, and you know, I know I'm spiraling into a different topic here, but when people say, uh, how can someone consume cannabis and then uh, go out and play football or get into the octagon and uh, uh, do some MMA fighting? Well, if they're taking a lot of opioids uh, and doing those things, they can certainly handle it with cannabis. You know, if somebody can pop a bunch of Oxycontin pills, which is essentially heroin, and go out and, and play the Super Bowl, then cannabis really isn't going to be a factor in that. <laughs> right. Well, you know, when you're mentioning how uh, the UFC and the NFL are doing their own research on it, you know, it makes sense. If you look at the CTE uh, NFL Players Union settlement that they came upon, I, I can't remember what the final number was. It was in the billions. Um, that gets expensive. Uh, but yeah. in a way, um, first it, you know, it forced the NFL to act. Um, and of course the UFC is acting, hoping to head off at the pass, any kind of lawsuits down the road for them. Um, but in a way that players union settlement was an immunization, you know, it was like a vaccination for the NFL and then, okay, let's just get it over with. This was our big, you know, 600 pound gorilla in the closet that no one talked about was the brain damage and, you know, junior Seau killing himself and how many other NFL players killing people, no one talking about it. It had to come, you know, it had to come to a head at some point. Now it's kind of, you know, it's in the rear view mirror. Okay. Here's, we know what it does now it's out and, you know, here's your money. Now let's move forward. And they try to make adjustments in the game and UFC is trying to make those adjustments now, but in the end, it's, it's a sport where you're trying to knock out your opponent. You're trying to render them unconscious. So, you know, I don't see that ever changing. No matter what the UFC tries to do to, to alter their rules, it's, uh, hold on a second, like a little, a little monkey just came home. I'm going to shut my door. Sure, sure. Uh, sorry about that. Um, oh, it's all good. Yeah, school's out. Uh, so... Anyway, if there's anything that can mitigate the damage or dare I say, prevent it, uh, and it's just natural and just, you know, it can't be patented. It can't be kept from you. Uh, and it has to be done, you know, with its cofactors, it has to be done as a whole, a whole substance. Uh, why wouldn't you like who would fight that? Mm hmm. Well, uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency uh, is one uh, who will fight that. And uh, 
well, in the leagues as well, the NFL, the MLB, uh, the NBA, they, they all uh, had very draconian uh, restrictions around cannabis. It could really ruin your career if you were caught uh, and nearly did on a number of levels. I mean, Michael Phelps, uh, he, he didn't have it too bad. There was more of just like a public scandal. He lost to Kellogg's sponsor, I think, and uh, uh, was suspended uh, from competing for like six months or something. But still, it was in the news. It was a big deal. And it's fascinating the um, inconsistencies in uh, the justification for its ban. Uh, you know, WADA has uh, three different criteria uh, for why they ban uh, any substance. Uh, one, it's a performance enhancing drug, so it'll give you an unfair advantage over the competition. Two, it's uh, unhealthy, it's harmful to the body. Uh, and three, it violates the spirit of the sport, which is obviously uh, a pretty nebulous term, uh, which they admit is difficult to define. Uh, and cannabis, uh, you know, you can't say it's going to take you beyond your natural limits uh, the way uh, steroids or blood doping will. You know, it, we all have these genetic limits uh, uh, and sometimes uh, steroids can, you know, make your muscles swell uh, and make your body function beyond uh, those genetic limitations. Uh, cannabis doesn't do that. So it's not really a performance enhancing drug in that way. Uh, in terms of its harm, uh, Perhaps uh, there are uh, things about it that are unhealthy, but, you know, we allow opioids, uh, we allow uh, ibuprofen, you know, which uh, dehydrates you, which is hard on the stomach. Uh, we allow uh, SSRIs or all sorts of antidepressants. Uh, there's a variety of things that are much more harmful than cannabis that uh, are, are not banned. But uh, the violation of the spirit of the sport is what they're kind of clinging to with this. And uh, in a 2011 uh, paper that WADA collaborated on, the National uh, Institute for Drug Abuse, uh, they said um, that athletes are role models for children. And so them using cannabis uh, would set a bad example for children. Uh, and so that essentially is the justification for its ban. Uh, uh, kids will get the wrong idea. Uh, and it's, it's not a small thing because that affects their bottom line. You know, so much of the commerce around sports uh, is wrapped up in it being family friendly, uh, a family uh, ritual uh, going out to the games or watching them uh, at home, especially around the holidays. And so much of the sponsorship dollars uh, are, are wrapped up in you being able to make this a family friendly activity. For some reason, alcohol isn't problematic in this realm. I mean, as I'm speaking to you, I'm uh, about a mile away from Coors Field. Uh, where our baseball team plays and, you know, alcohols, uh, you know, loaded up in every sports, including uh, distance running. And so really it's that kind of war on drugs uh, sensibility that is driving a lot of the cannabis prohibitions in sports. It's the idea that, you know, cannabis will make you lazy. It will make you uh, uncoordinated. It will uh, make you want to eat terrible food. And they see this as uh, uh, in conflict with the identity of an athlete. Um, but on that one point, the idea that athletes are role models for children, I mean, I don't want to talk shit about athletes, but when you, like I read David Goggin's book, he's a ultramarathon runner, he's a Navy SEAL, he's, he's a fascinating guy. I really loved his book. I, I follow him on Instagram. I think he's fascinating. But he talks about like running with broken legs that he duct taped together you know, he'll run until his kidneys shut down and he's pissing like, you know, red glue. Uh, and he's like hospitalized. 
And I, I hear these stories from ultra runners all the time. Like, yeah, I'm throwing up blood, you know, and like my ankle popped out of joint, my ribs separated. And to me, this reads like a, a Keith Richards or Guns N' Roses uh, biography, like, you know, them staying up for days on, on Coke and booze. Like it's a sort of hedonistic uh, lifestyle. And I don't understand why that should be seen as a role model for children. Uh, I mean, exercise is good. We should encourage children to exercise. But when you're at an elite level, you're punishing your body on a daily basis. And I, I, everyone should you know, have the freedom to do it. I do it with uh, distance running. I ran a 50K uh, last April and that just beat the hell out of my body. Um, that was with a 4,000 feet climb. It was uh, in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and so, but I consider that like a, bender you know like I, I went out on a running bender for eight and a half hours you know just I, I couldn't stop you know and so like the idea that I should encourage my 12 year old nephew to follow in my footsteps and run for eight and a half hours until you nearly die eh, no I, I don't think that's a good idea you'd said it at some point in the book it's the yin and yang the yin of you know balancing ambition with playfulness yeah. Um, and it, you know, it always comes back to the balance and the body lives in a state of balance, right? You know, it's acid alkaline balance and, uh, you know, all the different, uh, things that people would might normally look at as bad virus. So virus isn't necessarily bad. Now they're discovering how to deliver anti cancer, uh, molecules inside a virus sort of as a Trojan horse mm. to get around the cancer because the cancer puts the biofilm around itself. So the immune system doesn't recognize it. So now they've figured out how to get around that biofilm, uh, you know, the, the cancer masquerading as part of your body through virus, which used to mm. be the bad guy. So, you know, it's that living in concert and, and you know, um, the whole thing of banning cannabis or cannabinoids just seems so ridiculous. When I read that passage in your book that our bodies make its own can cannabinoids. So how crazy is it something that the body has evolved in such a, it's such a positive uh, resource to mm -hmm. ban, you know, exogenous uh, cannabinoids to help supplement something that's already natural and in the body? Yeah, and there was a real resistance to research around the endocannabinoid system uh, throughout medicine. You know, this was something that was discovered, um, I believe, in the 70s, uh, Raphael Meshulam uh, and, and some others, uh, it wasn't just him, uh, really discovered that it's not just anandamide that our body produces. We have a whole host of endogenous cannabinoids and uh, receptors in, uh, in the brain and throughout the body. And these are involved in really everything, nearly everything that goes on. You know, they, they regulate, uh, not exclusively, but in concert with other systems, uh, sleep, appetite, mood, fertility, immune system, uh, you know, nearly everything that goes on in the body. And it, what was interesting in the book is uh, Meshulam, who is kind of the godfather, the pioneer of cannabis research, when he first started researching cannabis, uh, the National Institute of Health said, why do you want to research that? Nobody uses cannabis. This was in 1962. Uh, and they thought it was irrelevant. They didn't even want to uh, fund or approve his study. And then by uh, the 90s, they, said, they came out with research that said, uh, the endocannabinoid system is involved in nearly all human diseases. Uh, and so, 
yeah, it's pretty important, wouldn't you say, uh, in medicine? And yet um, there was a survey, I think in the late 2000s, early 2010s, that showed 9% of medical schools are teaching the endocannabinoid system. Now that's changed a lot since then. It's much more prevalent now. It's being researched and taught in medical schools, uh, uh, you know, to a much greater degree than it was then. But for so long, we just weren't studying this system because of the stigma around cannabis. Uh, there was just, nobody wanted to stick their head up and say like, oh, I'll you know, brand myself with this topic. I'll make this the cornerstone of my career. There were a handful of people and now they're you know, sitting pretty uh, because there's so much research going on about this, but for so long it was taboo just because they, they thought they'd be viewed like a hippie. You know, not even for studying uh, phytocannabinoids, which is THC and CBD, uh, the uh, cannabinoids in the plants, but just for studying what's going on in our bodies with endocannabinoids. Uh, and I think that's also reflected in WADA. You know, things are slowly progressing where we're calming down and not getting so embarrassed by talking about cannabis or cannabinoids and can just do the research, you know, acknowledge uh, what's going on in the body and, and progress and, and learn how this uh, magical plant can benefit our lives. There's another way it benefits our lives. And this one blew my mind. You cited some research from Angela Bryan, University of Colorado Boulder, uh, where it says, if you look at data of long-term uh, cannabis users, you see that they have lower body mass index, a better waist to hip ratio, lower rates of diabetes. And this next one is huge because so much of disease revolves around inflammation, better insulin function. You go on mm. to add that subsequent studies have also revealed that cannabis users are 10% less likely to get cancer and have lower mortality rates when experiencing heart failure than their sober counterparts. Just this alone, when you look at the pandemic of inflammation and like just to visit COVID for one quick second, it was everybody who had diabetes. It was everybody who was inflamed. It was everybody who had that weren't sensitive and had you know they 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 had bad insulin. They were not right. sensitive to their insulin. That just on that alone, why you would resist this? I mean, that was really powerful. Yeah, and that flies in the face of a lot of assumptions we have about cannabis users. <clears throat> like I said, that uh, lazy stoner stereotype. You know, when uh, cannabis was first legalized in Colorado and there was uh, in 2012 and it wasn't going to come online until 2014, uh, our governor, uh, John Hickenlooper, said, like, don't break out the Cheetos and Goldfish crackers just yet. Uh, and there were so many comments about, like that. You know, there's this assumption that cannabis users eat shitty food and yes. don't exercise. And Angela Bryan's research. Uh, shows that that's just not the case, you know, in one of her early studies on this topic, uh, she did a survey, really just looking at the uh, exercise habits of um, people uh, focused on legalized states, they added the cannabis question, and then they're like, okay, let's just focus on Oregon, California, Colorado. Uh, and let's see what the exercise habits are of people out there. And let's throw cannabis, a couple of cannabis questions in there. She found that 80% of respondents said they use cannabis before, during, or after their workout. Uh, and that got a lot of media attention because it just flew in the face of these assumptions that cannabis users are, are 
unhealthy. Um, and so, yeah, it can have a number of benefits. Uh, and, and it's, it's not really clear if like cannabis provides those functions, you know, if it, if it does, uh, you know, lower your obesity uh, or heart disease or cancer uh, likelihood, uh, or if there's something about cannabis that changes your approach to food uh, or to exercise or to stress, which then has impacts on a lot of those ailments. Um, but, you know, we at least need to get rid of this idea that cannabis users are unhealthy or that if somebody starts using cannabis, it means that their health is going to take a dark turn. And the funny thing about Angela Bryan, uh, I, sh she's a wonderful person and uh, does some amazing research. I, I participated in one of her studies I talk about it in the book. She got into this topic thinking that the legalization of cannabis would reduce uh, the amount of exercise people are getting. Uh, she's a, I believe, behavioral anthropologist, if I have that right, uh, something along those lines. And she was uh, researching for years uh, why people don't exercise. Uh, and so when cannabis legalization uh, hit, she was like, oh no, uh, is this gonna have this detrimental impact on the amount of exercise people are getting? And that's when she started doing these surveys and found just the opposite. Uh, and then she became a convert uh, to cannabis. Uh, she talks in this NPR podcast about how when she had the surgery, uh, she didn't use any opioids. She just used cannabis edibles and it was a, a much easier uh, thing to, uh, you know, wean herself off of, uh, you know, rather than uh, oxycodone. Um, so yeah, we are definitely in the middle of a huge culture shift around this topic, particularly in relation to health. Um, and, and one more thing, I think that's the reason why uh, uh, older Americans are the fastest growing demographic of cannabis users, uh, because it impacts your ability to, you know, uh, aging impacts your ability to exercise a lot of the time, you know, things hurt more and uh, you, you don't want to uh, move as much when you get all that pain and inflammation. Well, cannabis can be a game changer in that. Uh, and Angela's research uh, shows that uh, a lot of people are uh, exercising more. Uh, a lot of older Americans are re-engaged with exercise uh, by using cannabis as a, as a supplement for the activity. You had mentioned Angela's operation and, and, you know, so many people getting operations. One of the things that, that I noticed in my own research was uh, the anesthesia that you have to subject yourself to for an operation is actually brain damaging. And I'm mm -hmm. post post op uh, medications, like you said, like the oxycodones and the pain meds also very, very bad for the brain. Um, you know, and I, it's funny, my wife was, I had a headache about a week ago and she was trying to give me a, you know, like a couple of Tylenols or, and I said, you know what, let me go take a look. Let me research that. I, you know, like I'm going to go do a gummy because mm -hmm. neuroprotective versus neuro damage just on that alone. Again, there's just so many easy calls. Like to me, it's just mm -hmm. an easy call. Do I want to do something that research is starting to reveal brain damaging or mm -hmm. research is revealing neuroprotective? So for me, you know, that it's, it's another one of those kind of no brainers. Um, here's a, here's a kind of a, a, a selfish question. Um, does cannabis help with mental performance in any way and concentration and focus? Cause that would be another 
element that would kind of fly in the face of the stereotype, you know, of kind of fogging off, fogging out, you know, and just kind of being, Hey dude, where, you know, where's my car? You know, like that would kind of fly in the face if there's any kind of um, research that's demonstrating it. Cause if it's neuroprotective, can you make the leap that it actually helps in any way with focus or, or cognition? Well, there's a, the research is mixed on that. Uh, in my experience and the uh, people I spoke with, um, the conclusion that I come to, I say this again and again in the book, is don't try new things stoned. Uh, I think it can facilitate greater concentration in people who, in activities that you already understand. Uh, you know, if I went rock climbing for the first time about a month ago as an indoor gym, and I got a little bit of fear of heights, and I've never put on like rock climbing shoes, never used one of those uh, auto belay things. Uh, and so the experience was pretty intimidating. I did not get high before that. I was with a bunch of rock climbers who, yeah, smoked a blunt in the car before they went in and had a great time. I'm not gonna do that uh, when I'm trying something new. Uh, but for things that I already have a uh, implicit memory with, uh, like riding my bike or running trails, uh, yeah, it can increase the sort of myopic focus on that task itself. I hear this from um, trail runners when it comes to running downhill. Uh, for anyone who's ran a trail downhill, things are coming at you so fast. Uh, I had a late night run with a friend who was a much better runner than me <clears throat> on a very rocky trail the other night. And we had headlamps on and it's just like a tiny little you know, circle of light that you have to pay really close attention to. And to do that, you need to like shut everything out and just be like, there's a rock, there's a hole, there's a tree root, you know, and you're just bam, bam, bam. And when you're leaning into that downhill, you know, things come at you so fast uh, that you don't really, it's one of those things that you have to like turn off part of your brain. Uh, like if you think about it too much, you're going to mess yourself up. Um, and I hear that with down, downhill skiers as well. Uh, that they need to shut everything out and just focus on the the salalaming, uh, or you know, uh, I I'll admit, like I've never been a skier, so I don't know uh, all the terms. But there's a lot of things coming at you with uh, downhill skiing that you need to just like be bam, 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 uh, focused on. And so I think that's why, you know, people say like, how could you? play a, a professional football game when you're stoned. Well, these people have been playing football since they were like six years old. Uh, you know, they, they understand what that ball feels like. They understand the rules of the game. They understand the strategy. And so if they're getting really high beforehand, they're just going to have like this supreme focus on where is that ball? Where's the hole to get through? You know, uh, again, I don't know all the terminology for professional football, but I, I hear it with uh, bodybuilders as well. Like they're just tuned into the curl of the bicep uh, and they can feel all the muscles, all the tendons, everything that's in their hand. And, and just uh, all that exists is, is that arm and that weight and the, the movement itself. So, uh, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying, if you already know how to do something, yes, it can increase your focus. If you're trying to learn something for the first time, I do not recommend cannabis. Very good answer. Thank you for that. That's a, an important distinction. I, I appreciate that. Another selfish question. Um, and this regards, I'm trying to become metabolically flexible in my nutrition. Uh, several of my friends have been longtime ketone burners. 
and are really trying to lobby me to switch over. You know, I've traditionally been kind of in the vegetarian space um, and I find it extremely easy to build muscle as a vegetarian. I, I always crack up when people say, how do you build muscle as a vegetarian? I'm like, dude, that's the easiest category to build muscle because your insulin is so freaking high all the time. It's easy to put on muscle. Don't like that. The hard part is put on for me. Well, first off, the hard part is coming over to becoming a, a ketone burner, a fat burner, as opposed to, you know, a glucose burner. That's really hard for me to do. But the people who I know to come over, they say, yeah, you're going to flat, you're going to flatten out. You're going to flatten out uh, as a ketone person. But the evidence is becoming pretty compelling that your brain burns a lot more cleanly on the ketones rather than sugar, sort of likening it to the flame on a candle is nice and steady, never goes up and never goes down and will last 10 times longer. So the candle being the ketones, whereas a you know, big pile of newspapers, you get a big poof, right? A big mm -hmm. flame and then it's out and then you got to do it all over again. So that would be, you know, carbs. So my selfish question is, is there any, uh, information or data or research pointing to benefits with cannabis in helping to there's a kind of a bonk there's like a, for me there's a three-day bonk i can't get past when my it's trying to make the shift i don't have any sugar left and i almost feel like i'm a drug addict getting off something with the sweats and the nausea and i feel catabolic which psychologically is really hard for me because i'm a hard gainer so I, 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 it's a really hard, I've never been able to do it. I've been trying for two years because I have so many people who say, when you come over, dude, and when you're a ketone burner, you're going to be like Einstein. You got to do it. You got to come over. It's going to help your brain. Is there any uh, protocols for me that cannabis might help in that transition? Not that I'm aware of, no. Um, Damn it! I mean... <laughs> <laughs> From a dietary standpoint, I know that uh, cannabis is rich in a lot of nutrients and proteins. And uh, for me personally, I like to make my own edibles and I like to use the, the plant itself. Uh, I have this thing that's called a decarboxylator, which is the process that cannabis goes through when you're making edibles. It removes, starts with THCA and it removes the acid molecule, becomes THC. You have to heat it up. That's why you heat it up when you smoke it or you know you have to cook it you can't just eat raw flour uh it's not going to do anything for it. i mean there'll be nutrients in there uh but it's not going to have any sort of uh intoxicating effect so this little oven i have this decarboxylator uh will cook the cannabis and then it comes out as like this brown substance it doesn't taste terribly good but you mix it in with the uh, you know some peanut butter or something put it in a smoothie and, and you don't really taste it I'm getting uh, a whole variety of not just cannabinoids, uh, but nutrients uh, through that, um, that I think is really uh, lost on most products, most edibles that you would buy in a dispensary. Uh, they just go through such a refinement process of extracting the THC and the CBD and, and putting that into uh, a gummy or a cookie or something that I think... Um, in, in years ahead, there'll be research showing that there's uh, so much going on in that plant that if you can just eat it, uh, the whole thing, uh, even though it's cooked, you're uh, getting so much more out of it than uh, just eating the gummies. Yeah, I, I'm wondering um, if it's if it's an is it, it sounds like it would be anabolic just in the fact that it's it has so much nutrition. Um, so I'm wondering. 
I mean, you know, for all the other reasons we've already highlighted it, you know, I've, I've already rotated it into my schedule, you know, I now ingest, um, but I, I'm wondering just where and how and when to apply it in terms of some of my intermittent fasting protocol. Um, is, is there any kind of intersection there that I should know about, or we should know about with fasting and, you know, the benefits of, uh, of intermittent fasting or timed feeding? Not that I'm aware of, uh, but keep in mind that cannabis is an appetite stimulant. So if you're trying to fast, uh, it's uh, something that's going to make it very difficult. <laughs> Although so there's a recent development uh, with a big edible company called Wana uh, out of Colorado. They have these new line of gummies called Wana Fit, which uh, have THCV in them. Uh, and there's a bunch of science that I don't understand well enough to get into what THCV is. Uh, but I know that with these gummies, uh, they provide the, the energy that, uh, that I love so much from THC uh, and the passion that I get uh, from THC when I'm out running. Um, but they're also an appetite uh, suppressant, uh, which I, they didn't tell me when they first sent me these gummies. Uh, I, was, I was out running and I'm like, I love these, you know, I'm, I'm having a great run. And then afterwards, I'm like, where's my appetite? Usually I'm just, you know, I want a giant thick smoothie after I'm done running, but now I just don't want anything. And that happened a couple of times. And then I got on the phone with someone from uh, WADA and they're like, yeah, they're an appetite suppressant. And I'm like, okay, I get the, the appeal of that, you know, from the market, maybe I'll take them if I'm fasting, but when I'm out running uh, and I've just tackled, you know, 10, 20 miles on a trail, uh, I want a big ass meal after that. I'm, I'm ravenous. Uh, and so I don't want any of that appetite suppressant after getting all of that cardio. Uh, but I could definitely see the appeal for people who are, you know, just getting into exercise or people who want to cut weight, uh, that there's now cannabis products out there that uh, only uh, not only won't stimulate your appetite, but will help you suppress your appetite, which is amazing. I, I just love it. It's amazing. That's it, like the versatility of, of mm -hmm. the substance. There's some wonderful um, stories and testimonies in the book as well about body transformation, uh, mm -hmm. physical transformation, spiritual transformation, emotional transformation, mental transformation. One stuck out in my mind. Um, I guess it was in a class. I can't, couldn't tell what kind of class, but I love the name of the class, Mary Jane Fonda. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Mary Jane Fonda class. Apparently there's a woman who got out of a wheelchair. Do you remember the details of that story and lost a hundred pounds? Yeah. Yeah. That was Janessa Leah. Um, different from the Mary Jane Fonda. Um, Janessa was actually the one who took me rock climbing uh, a month ago and was uh, smoking a, a, a blunt with her partner uh, beforehand. Um, she's just an amazing character as a, a, you know, from a journalism standpoint, but also as, as just an amazing human. She had what's called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a hyperelasticity in the joints. Uh, well, it's a, an elasticity uh, throughout the body, but it, it, it created such huge pain for her in her joints because, you know, most people aren't flexible enough. Uh, they get tight in their muscles or tight in their tendons. I certainly do after running the trails. Uh, she had the exact opposite problem where everything's too loose. Things are popping out of joint, uh, which as you could imagine is profoundly painful. 
and uh, she became obese, uh, stuck in a wheelchair, and was on a lot of pharmaceuticals, uh, antidepressants, opioids, benzodiazepines, amphetamines, uh, a whole lot of stuff that was just making her absolutely miserable. She wanted to die. Uh, she, she talks about in the interview just being stuck in this wheelchair full of pain. I want to die. Uh, and she got into Rick Simpson oil, uh, which is a, a very potent form of cannabis, uh, high in CBD that a, a lot of cancer patients use. And she was using a, a profoundly large amount of it. I think it was something like a thousand milligrams of THC or something a day, like, uh, but certainly had the justification for that. And uh, when you compare that with like the, the Oxycontin and uh, Xanax and uh, Adderall that she was on, like, yeah, uh, give her all the cannabis uh, in the world. She, um, she got out of her wheelchair. She started doing uh, pool uh, exercises, you know, cause that's all she could do. Uh, she was in such pain. She'd go into a pool, you know, that you get those floaty weights that you like push down into the water. There's a little bit of resistance there. She worked her way up from that level of a workout to, you know, running uh, uh, half marathons uh, and working out every day. She became a fitness instructor. Uh, and uh, she, um, she's, uh, she had her own uh, cannabis gym for a while. And that was an interesting story how that got shut down. There's all sorts of politics about uh, cannabis events in Colorado and where the, the legal lines are drawn. Um, but yeah, she's still doing it. Uh, I forget exactly what her Instagram handle is, but if you Google Janessa Leah, uh, you can find her out there. She's doing some really great stuff now. And, uh, and she talks in the book about how it was her daughter really, uh, she was a single mom, her daughter that kept her from just killing herself uh, as she really wanted to. And it was her daughter that like pushed her to get this higher quality of life and, and be able to show up as a parent um, but then also just have a higher quality of life for herself. I mean, she's now just like active and full of, you know, vibrant life. And uh, it's just amazing the, the transformation her body went through, uh, you know, through the, the Rick Simpson oil. Rick Simpson oil. I'm gonna have to look into that. It sounds like it's uh, very efficacious and, and powerful, which is mm -hmm. what I want. Yeah. Um, all right. If you're comfortable, tell us, uh, you know, that, I think one of the big things to always remind everybody is everything has to do with dose. Everything has to do with, you know, if you're going to go heavy, making sure you have a babysitter or someone who can, you know, almost like designated driver, right? Like you, you want someone who can kind of keep an eye on you, especially if you're a newbie at this. Um, and the, you have a very <laughs> funny story about a carrot cake and uh, dose issues. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I have a number of stories of messing up my doses. <laughs> it's the reason. Plenty of stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's the reason I was convinced to write the how-to chapter. I didn't want to because I don't like telling people what to do. Uh, I, I don't want to be a guru that's starting some big movement. Uh, I, but yeah, there's some helpful tips that I could have benefited from in my early days when I went out to uh, Humboldt County uh, for the first time and, uh, never taken edibles before been smoking for a couple of years at that point. So I was comfortable with it. We made some, uh, sugar trim edibles, uh, some carrot cake and just weren't really paying attention to, uh, how much trim we're putting in there. Uh, didn't certainly couldn't measure the THC content. Uh, didn't have the tools for that or the knowledge to do that. And we just threw it in there. And then also I wasn't paying attention to how much I was eating. Uh, I was on vacation. I was seeing some friends. We were having some beers, smoking some weed. We ate the, 
the one edible uh, early on and I was getting high and I was like, man, that was tasty. Let's, uh, I'm going to have another slice of that, you know, let's uh, take it to 11. Uh, and I really lost it. Uh, I, they took me to some party on a farm and I, there was a band and I jumped on the stage and was insulting people and took my shirt off and everyone was just weirded out and I ran into a cornfield and they couldn't find me. Uh, eventually they just, they literally locked me in the van. Uh, they're like, just stay in the van until this party's over, then we'll take you home. And then I wound up sleeping for days after that. I mean, I wasn't in any real medical danger, but like it, it ruined my vacation. You know, they, they woke me up and said, you have to get on the plane to go uh, back home. And they said they drove me to the airport and felt concerned about me because they kind of had to like literally push me out of the van and be like, all right, here's your ticket. Here's your suitcase. Get on the plane. And I was just like, I, I what, where? That was my vacation. Uh, and then also that ha a similar thing happened when I first got into running trails. Uh, I, I'd been running in the city for a long time. And then his friends took me up to the trails in the Rocky Mountains. And I was like, this is so fun. I'm just going to run, run, run. And I, I ran past them. I, I was just sprinting. I was burning all of the calories in my stomach, you know, uh, getting into that high heart rate. Uh, and so I found myself like 10 miles in being like, I haven't paid attention to any of these signs, you know, on the trails, the trails splinter off all over the place. I haven't been watching <laughs> any of that. I'm now starving. I didn't bring any food. I didn't bring any water. And I have no idea where my friends are. And it was an absolute disaster. Uh, so things like that, like, you know, like I said earlier, don't learn new things when you're high. Uh, that includes running trails. You know, if you've always ran in the city or in parks and it's your first time in the trails, don't take a lot of cannabis and just go, you know, gazelling up the mountain uh, without paying attention to anything. Uh, I, I always encourage people when they're new to cannabis, uh, there's a phrase in Colorado, uh, start low and go slow. Um, start with a low dose and wait, you know, wait an hour. You know, probably won't take that long to kick in, but just to be safe, wait an hour, take like five milligrams and be at home where you don't have the responsibilities. You know, you got a babysitter or that you've already walked the dog, turn your phone off and, and have some mindfulness. Be like, how do I feel right now? Do I feel anxious? Do I feel sleepy? Do I feel jolly and giggly? You know, uh, and, and get your consciousness uh, accustomed to that sensation uh, before you combine it with anything you know, uh, including exercise and then start low with exercise as well. If you haven't done it in a long time, go for a walk in the park, do some light stretching, you know, on YouTube, there's all sorts of like aerobics for beginners, yoga for beginners, do something very gentle and ease yourself into both of these things, both the cannabis and the exercise. Uh, and don't do like Maureen Dow did uh, and come to Denver having no idea what the dosage is of these edibles. And she ate the whole fucking candy bar, which was like 10 times what she should have eaten. And then she writes this column of like, I was terrified. I thought I was going to die. I thought they were going to, the police were coming for me. You know, things are terrible in Colorado. These edibles are a nightmare. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, if say you'd never had alcohol before and you know, there was a way to like discreetly take it like you can cannabis without knowing how much you're taking. And someone just drinks like five glasses of Everclear and like throws up everywhere and, you know, gets their stomach pumped at the hospital. And they're like, well, no more alcohol for me. Look what alcohol does. We're like, well, maybe you should have a beer or a glass of wine, you know, ease yourself into it. Uh, and 
it's the same thing with cannabis. People are just taking way too much and having these terrible experiences and being like, well, that's what cannabis is. That's what cannabis does. I don't want any more of that. Well, if you took like a tenth of what you took, it's a whole different ballgame. I thought that was funny when uh, when she was Maureen Dowd was saying, I'm on the bed. And I was dead, but I was upset that no one was telling me I was dead. Just that conversation is just so funny to me. Like the fact that you, well, you're having a conversation with yourself. So that would tell you right there, you're not dead, but she was convinced she was dead. And she was really mad at people because they wouldn't tell her she was dead. The other yeah, funny, I, yeah, go ahead. I speak with a lot of ER doctors in Colorado or I did for a story years ago and they were having a surge of people showing up uh, complaining about cannabis. And this wasn't the case uh, when I talked to an ER doctor in California in um, uh, uh, Marin County, um, this guy who'd been working for like 40 years in emergency medicine in, in California. He's like, I'd never, I saw like nine people in 40 years who were complaining about cannabis, but somehow in Colorado, we're getting, you know, a hundred of them a day showing up to ERs uh, or hundreds, uh, and really it came down to the Maureen Dowd story. Tourists coming to Colorado, having no idea how to use cannabis. They don't know anyone else who knows how to use it, you know, that can talk them down and be like, no, you're not dying. Maybe you're uncomfortable right now, it'll pass. Chill out, here's a blanket, here's a TV, wait it out, you'll be fine. No, they take way too much and they think they're dying and they show up to the ER, I'm dying. And these ER doctors are like, we reassure them that they're not dying. This is the medical uh, uh, practice that we're giving them. We reassure them. And then we hydrate them. Uh, we, want, we monitor them. Uh, and you, know, you could just stay home and save yourself a pretty hefty medical bill. <laughs> uh, you know? and, and you could do a little bit of research beforehand and don't eat the whole damn candy bar. You right. know? Eat, a, eat a little piece of it or a, a half a piece. Difference in dose, as you said, you know, the difference of getting a really nice buzz, just a really nice reflective contemplative high uh, where you're in your own world and feeling great and having some great thoughts and some ideas for your business and brains working well. And you just, if everything just feels good versus anxiety and paranoia and lethargy is just dose dependent. So that, you know, mm -hmm. having it be legal and regulated so that as you also said in your book, you love being able to know the exact doses with the gummies. That's you don't have to figure it out. You don't have to try to do the weighing. You don't have to just hope you're getting it right. No, it's right there on the pack. And so you yep. just learn, you know, and it's just, uh, you learn how to do it. And now you, you, it's, it's like anything it's, it's balance and dose dependent and, uh, you know, taking it slow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we go, it goes back to that, you know, delicate balance of yin and yang, you know, it's uh, mm -hmm. don't go in, don't go too far in any one direction. I'll give you a quick little uh, CBD story. Oh, wait, I want to ask wanted to say one of the things that gave me a chuckle was the uh, specificity of why you jumped on the stage with this jam band. You even said the band, they were playing Steely Dan, and that's not how you play Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> the resident expert on Steely Dan. That was just so funny. That's not how you play Steely Dan. <laughs> I'm going to show Which, you how to play. First, let me take my shirt off so I can show you how to play <laughs> Steely Dan. <laughs> and that's the logic of someone who's had way too many edibles. <laughs> exactly. Here's my CBD story. 
I'm in Stuttgart doing a fight and I'm getting ready to come home. And sometimes, you know, body clock thrown off. It's a four day fight. You know, you're coming across six or seven time zones for just three days. So you never really get to adjust your time clock. The jet lag never really leaves. And so I'm kind of messed up. I'm getting ready to come home and my face just looked like a catcher's mitt, really dry. I think I wasn't hydrated and I was desperate for some oil. There was no body lotion in the hotel. Not that I would put that on anyway with all the chemicals, but I was desperate for like some aloe or something for my face. Couldn't find anything. And then I realized, oh, wait, I have a bottle of CBD in my suitcase. So it was based, I don't know what the oil was, but it, it was a moisturizer. You know, it was going to be better than what my face was. I could tell you that much. So I slathered it all over my face and uh, it kind of helped and went to the mm. airport, went to the airport, got in the uh, immigration passport line at, at the Stuttgart airport. You know, there's like 500 people, you know, those big long winding, you got to walk all the way this way, then turn and come all the way back again and all the way back again. There's only like four passport officers. Well, all of a sudden these badass German cops look more like paramilitary come into the room there's maybe three or four of them. They have the machine guns. They've got the look. And they had these German shepherds, just nasty looking, like, like kind of pulling at the pulling at the leash type of German shepherds. I'm like, I can remember thinking to myself, boy, that's not a good look for your tourism. Uh, you know, very, very intimidating. And they started having the dogs sniff all the suitcases and sniff the people. And clearly they were drug dogs. And I'm in line. I'm feeling fine. And they get about five people away from me and the dogs start going nuts. They start looking up at me, going, ah, ah, pulling on the leash. And I'm like, oh, there must be some dude around me. Must have drugs, right? Some, someone's going, something's going on. Must be that kind of start looking at, start looking at the guy down this way. You know, like we're in a lineup and it's gotta be this guy. Well, maybe it's this guy, you know? So anyway, the dogs come up to me. I start jumping up and trying to get at me. And they're trying, I'm like, well, you know, the cops are holding them, of course. And it starts like, this is a little bit mortifying, like this wild scene here in Germany. And everyone starts looking at me like, oh, what's, what did this guy do wrong? And I couldn't tell. And they're trying to get at my face. Cops nah. pull me out of the line, pull me out of the line. They put me in the special room. And two or three other guys in there who look like dirt bags. And, uh, we were in the room waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, one dude kind of opens one of the other doors in his baggage. It's outside baggage. He looks around and just goes, I'm out of here. And he leaves. And so we all eventually, after we waited for about a half an hour, we eventually just went into baggage. But the CBD. So note to self, be careful yeah. in Germany. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what well, they would have done if they would have taken me off the flight. I don't know what, but we, we just... We got out of that room and got our bags and got out of Dodge. <laughs> it was pretty wild. Well, um, Germany's legalizing uh, cannabis now. Are they? Uh, that, that news just broke uh, a week or two ago. Uh, I don't know what the timeline is for them implementing it. These things always take uh, a long while if they even happen, you know, like we, what we saw in Washington, D.C. Uh, but yeah, uh, um, Malta also, uh, I just heard yesterday is legalizing cannabis. Uh, so it's, it's starting to hit Europe, uh, uh, and then Israel as well. Uh, so if it, uh, if it makes it to some of the English speaking countries, I might, uh, move over there and 
get a job in journalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so beautiful over there. I, I'm very lucky. I get to go there quite a bit. Eastern Europe is awesome. Um, although I was not the smartest of, of uh, I brought some psilocybin, but in pill form with me to Turkey once. And mm. I, uh, I can remember walking around the hotel talking to everybody. I get, I'm a real chatty Kathy on psilocybin. I was just talking to everybody. And then I, I talked to someone and they said, you never watched Midnight Express, dude? I don't know if you ever watched Midnight Express. It's a dude who get, does, has some kind of drugs with him. He's in Turkey and he mm. gets arrested and it's Turkish law. And they put him in jail for like 30 years. It's based on a true story on oh drugs. God. Yeah, and it's brutal. Like, the, you're like you do not want to be in jail in Turkey. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a real rocket scientist with the psilocybin and, uh, you know, in Istanbul, Turkey, not the smartest, not the smartest <laughs> moves. Right. And when my wife sees this show, she's going to be real thrilled at that part because she doesn't know right. that yet. <laughs> um, well, I've been really greedy with your time. Uh, did I leave anything out? Was there anything you wanted to make sure we touched upon? You know, I don't think so. I think uh, we covered quite a bit uh, in this segment. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And you had this beautiful passage that I'd like to like to read before we go uh, that says that this is you. Ultimately, this is not necessarily a book about weed or even running. It's about a perspective shift on the whole concept of exercise. It's about engaging our evolutionary reward system. This is inside the body to make exercise as pleasurable as food or sex and about how cannabis can help jumpstart those long dormant mechanisms. That's so well-written, Josiah. So oh, well thank written. you. Yeah. It's uh, the book is, is such a treat. I really can't exaggerate how much I enjoyed reading it. Uh, it one more time. It's, it's runner's high, which I find so again, so, uh, ironic that it comes it does the it does the psychedelic thing oh look at that does the psychedelic <laughs> thing <laughs> don't adjust your screen at home folks it's just my green screen but there it is right there pick it up where can they where can they get that in all the regular uh, places like amazon where can they pick up the book if they're interested in reading this uh really anywhere uh just don't get it confused with Dean Carnassi's uh, memoir that came out like six months before this, which is also called Runner's High. I think his is called A Runner's High, and mine's runner's just Runner's High. High. Did so, you know uh, that he, did you know that someone else had I that title? Because it's the no. perfect, I mean, you can't do any better as a title than that, right? I agree. Yeah, that, yeah. there was no conversation about what the title should be. That was it uh, from conception. Wow. Well, we've been visiting with Josiah Hesse, freelance journalist in Denver. Uh, writing and all other subjects too. Uh, oh, you have a, you, you have a, a book on, it's a psychological horror thriller. What's the name of that book? Uh, it's a series called Carnality. It's a yeah, psychological horror about evangelicals. <laughs> oh my God. That's going to be, I think we all can relate to that. We've all been, sure. I, I grew up Catholic. So I've had, you know, I can remember the distinct time when I came home and my knuckles were red from a ruler. And that's when my mom took me out of the Catholic schools. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, getting hit on the knuckles because the teacher was so boring. I couldn't sit still and I needed, you know, I needed the, uh, what's that, uh, 
school. There's a really good, uh, I can't remember it offhand. It's uh, the uh, Montessori. I needed the Montessori. Mm. I needed to get up. I needed to touch. I needed to move my body. That's how I needed to learn. I didn't need to get hit on the knuckles with a wood stick. That didn't help me learn at all. Yeah, Uh, it doesn't help anybody. (laughs) Doesn't help. Uh, Featured in the Guardian, Vice, Politico, High Times, and the Denver Post. You could also check him out. He's the senior editor of the Denver Arts and Literature magazine, Suspect Press. Thanks once again for a wonderful visit, Josiah. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Talk to you soon, brother. For our full schedule of fights on the NBC Sports Network, CW and ABC affiliates, visit unitedfightalliance.com. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify and Amazon Music. United Fight Alliance, for the fighter in you.